Good morning. I think I said something toward the end of last year that I thought that would be the last time I would see you. I'm so sorry, I'm back. I mean, I'm not sorry, but anyway, it's a, it is a pleasure to, to come back and be a part of God's people here in this place. Uh, Levi had planned to come and preach, but other things conflicted in his schedule. And so <clears throat> I was asked to take his place. Uh, I don't know how a 71-year-old guy can take the place of a young lion like Levi at 28, but he does have a few things going on, and I think he's actually going to get married soon. I pray for Jess. She needs all the prayer she can get, and uh, I guess we should say that about a couple in this church too, but I won't get into that because I haven't preached yet. Maybe I'll say something afterwards about that. But it is an honor to come back and be with you and to preach God's Word to you. And so I want you to be sure you have turned there in your Bibles, please, to the 25th Psalm. I want you to have it open. And once again, as I've looked through your bulletin, there is no place for you to put notes and try to find a place along the margins or something, because there going to be about five five statements that I'm going to want you to jot down. You could do that in the margin of your Bible. Some people don't like to write in their Bible. I do a lot of that in my Bible just to see connections and things, but I hope that along the way there'll be some things here that will help and encourage you. F.B. Meyer was a great voice for God in England during the 19th century. And he was traveling by boat one day or one evening from Northern Ireland down to a coastal town in England. I think he was going there to preach. But arriving near the port in the dark of night, he watched as the captain carefully steered the ship toward the harbor. But then he he wondered how the captain knew exactly where to go because There were so many lights along the shore. And so Meyer asked the old seaman about the secret. And the captain pointed to a a big light over on the left and then to another light over here on the right, and then another located beyond the other two. The captain then told him, keep your eyes on those three lights and see what happens. And the ship, as it moved ever closer to the shore, the lights began to merge and line up perfectly. And then the captain told Meyer, he said, all I have to do is to see those three big lights become one. Then I can sail straight ahead. Now, in the darkness of the night, he had to keep his eyes on the light And how many times have we found ourselves in the darkness of our circumstances wondering what we should do, where we should turn? But it is the guiding light of God's Word, God's truth, that directs us in these uncertain and difficult times. I don't know about you, but many would consider these days in which we're living today unprecedented times. I mean, look at what makes the headlines in the news these days. Fears are viral, literally. All we can talk about is COVID. What's going on with that? Threats of war now are abounding. Every day we're hearing something about there's going to be an invasion of the Ukraine. Also, the social and moral values and boundaries that we've all known and loved for so many years They're shifting rapidly, are they not? What do we do? How do we navigate these waters in which we live today? Well, I'll tell you, there is nothing new under the sun. Every generation, every culture, every people, they've seen these kind of things happening. In Psalm 25, David has found himself in a desperate need of 
divine light, divine guidance, and divine protection in situations that he was facing. Though we don't know the exact historical setting for the psalm, it is plainly telling us that it was a time when, when David's enemies were present. You'll see that in verses 2 and 3, along with verse 19. When trials were rising in his life, verse 15, you can see that. When he feels all alone, verse 16. When his heart is discouraged, verse 17. And some around him are venting their hatred toward him, verse 19. It sounds a lot like things that can happen in our day. Maybe there's happening in your lives today. In this dark hour, though, David cries out to his God and gives us encouragement to follow his example. Now, before plunging into the psalm, I want you to look at the text, and I want you to observe several details that help us understand the mood of the psalm. As you heard it read a moment ago, this psalm, as you can tell, is very personal. The pronouns I, me, my are used some 35 to 37 times according to the translation that you're using. The further the framework of this psalm is the Hebrew alphabet, as this is an acrostic. That is, each verse, 22 verses, each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is one of nine such psalms. In, in the Psalter. And that's why Leland Riken said this, it could be called an alphabet of petition and praise. Or maybe we could call it prayer from A to Z. We teach our children the same way, using simple books, with each page corresponding to one of the ABCs with a rhyme or a picture in it. I'm sure you probably have had a, a picture book like that in yours. But this psalm here was written this way in that Hebrew alphabet, each verse beginning with a letter of it, in order to make it instructive and memorable. I want you to note also that early in the psalm, David speaks of not being put to shame. Do you see that in verse 2? He doesn't want to be put to shame. If you look at verse 20 here toward the end of the psalm, he repeats this once again. These are bookends. Because this, this right here being mentioned is what reveals one of the greatest fears that David has at this time in his life. That maybe his life or maybe his leadership as king or even his Lord will be put to shame by what he has done or perhaps what others will say if David succumbs to the enemies. He does not want to bring shame upon the Lord. He doesn't want to bring shame in his life. This psalm also appeals to God's love and many other characteristics that we will see. But God's love, especially his covenant love, his hesed love, as the Hebrew word puts it, it appears three times, verses 6, 7, and 10 in a very rich section of the psalm about God. But the bottom line is this. This psalm is a prayer. It's a prayer for God's assistance in the time of crisis. It's a prayer that we all need to pray, that we cry out to God in our need. I will tell you this story that happened just to us. We've been in the middle of traveling, and uh, we, we have been with our kids up in Charlottesville, but then we took a trip to Colorado to go out and see my wife's uh, father. I'll talk about that in a moment. And then we have just gone up to Philadelphia to a conference up there. Well, when we had returned from Colorado, we got in late. Our flight was great, but when we got to the ground, there was nobody on the ground crew present. Another plane was parked at our gate. We sat on the tarmac there for 25 minutes waiting for somebody to come move that plane so we got it parked but then they didn't open the door because they didn't have anybody outside to greet us or bring us through the lines so we waited there for another 15 minutes and then we got downstairs and and we got to, went to our luggage 
And we waited and we waited and we waited because they didn't have anybody to unload the luggage for a while. All told, we waited over an hour before things got out. It's now after midnight and I'm driving home and we're all tired, but we're just driving home on Interstate 64. We get out beyond 95. And as we get out to 95, there's not many people out there. There's, in fact, there's three of us. I see one over in the far lane and there was a guy in the middle lane and I was coming up on the slow lane. I was driving within the speed limit, 60 miles an hour, but this guy was going a little bit slower. So I'm coming up alongside him and I get up about like that next to him. And all of a sudden he's coming over and he's right there next to my door and I've got to move over to the side. Well, that Sunday night we came back, there had been an ice on that way. We had had to scrape ice off our windshield. So there was ice on the side. And as soon as I pulled off here going 60 miles an hour and trying to slow down, I lost control of the car. My car went like this, almost hit this guy, then turned sideways, slid up and almost into this other guy. And then we start sliding 100, 180 degrees and we're going backwards down the interstate right toward the wall. There was a center wall there to, to divide the median. And I can remember as I'm thinking, we're going to have an accident. There was no way we could avoid that wall. I remember my wife crying out, Lord, help us. And that car spun over to the side and we're coming right up to it. And I'm watching it as we're coming up to the wall, and that car should not have stopped, but it stopped right there. We cried out to God. My wife cried out to God to save us in that moment. Well, here, he's going to cry out to God. And there are many petitions that we could point to here, but I've chosen to group them into five simple prayers for us to follow the flow of the psalm and to give us a template for our own prayers. I want you to look at verses 1 through 3, where we hear David's first prayer. I summarize it this way, Lord, protect me. Lord, protect me. Look at these verses again. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh, my God, in you I trust let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Because David is discouraged, he does a wise thing here, forcing himself to turn away from his fears and to focus his thoughts instead toward God. Now, notice what he specifically prays in those first three verses. He says, let me not be put to shame, verse 2, and let not my enemies exult or rejoice in triumph over me. Don't let them have the upper hand. We look to you. And yet, in spite of these possibilities, these dangers, these fears that's confronting him, this psalm opens with an air of confidence along with a dose of dependence. Notice this confidence. Verse 1, I lift up my soul. By the way, several times in prayers today, I've heard people, we lift up, we lift up. We take ourselves before God in our times of greatest need. Though I am down, David says, I choose to lift up my soul to you. He looks to his Lord. You see, to you, O Lord, all capitals, that's Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God. We look to you to, to keep us in your covenant and to keep us through the difficult times. As the letter Jude exhorts God's people, keep yourselves in the love of God. While also, a little bit later in verse 24, he reminds them that we look to him who is able to keep us from stumbling. We keep ourselves in the love of God, but we also are kept by the power of God who keeps us from stumbling. These opening words also remind me, as I read them, I lift up my soul 
of Psalm 121. 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Because the greatness and power of his creator assures him of God's ability to be also his protector in the time of need. So flowing from his confidence in God, look also here in verse 2 as we see his dependence upon God. Oh, my God, I, in you I trust. In essence, he's saying, though I have fears, I choose to exercise my faith that you are ultimately in control of everything in my life. This is no blind faith, the psalmist has. If you look back up the page to Psalm 24, 4, we hear of those who do not lift up his soul to what is false or empty. And yet, that reminds us that there are those who do lift up their souls at time to those things in attempt to find answers and peace in their lives, things that, that are empty and won't fulfill. We try to numb ourselves or, or we try to forget our problems. But no, we need an answer to those things. In contrast here, David's faith rests on two great truths that we're going to see through the rest of this. First, the promises of God, and secondly, the character of God. What God has said and what God, who God is. So then he affirms, verse 3, he's lifting up his soul, he is trusting in God, and he then says, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. That word wait, which appears three times in this psalm, is a strong word. We think of waiting and we're impatient. Yesterday, coming back from a conference up in Philadelphia, we got down to Lorton on Interstate 95. And we sat at Lorton for about 40 minutes. I've always wanted to sit in Lorton for about 40 minutes and just look around at cars and trucks. That's, that was a very fulfilling time for me. No, I, I had to wait. But now, wait a minute. That's what we think about wait. Let me tell you something else about this word for wait in the Hebrew. It really means to be bound together, to be twisted together. It's like a cord or like a rope where you twist together to give it what? Strength as it's bound together. Thus, this waiting here means we're bound together with God. Those who wait on God, wait for you. He says, I bind my soul together because then I can endure. Then I can find the strength in that union with God. So I, I lift up my soul to you. I cry out to you and trust in you, and I'm waiting. I, I am in, uh, I'm totally bound up with you and twisted together with my God in all of this. This is a word that may help you here. It's found over in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Familiar words. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him that has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those who wait upon the Lord, when your life is bound together in Christ, that's where we find our enduring strength. So David shows us how to find rest when we're restless, our strength when we are weak, and faith when our world is falling apart. So the question then that we must ask is this, do we lift up our souls to our faithful God when in darkness surrounds us? David says, I lift up my soul. I trust in you in these dark moments. 
in these difficult crises that I'm facing. And that's what we must do in our lives. So he's looking to God. He's resting in God. Lord, protect me, he prays. From that flows this second prayer, which I express this way. Lord, guide me. Lord, protect me, but Lord, guide me. Look at verses 4 and 5. When we're facing trouble, crisis in our life, something that bothers us, our questions are, which way do we turn? What should I do? Which option is best as I, I look out on the, on the road of life? <clears throat> he makes three specific requests here of God under guiding me. Look at them here in verses 4 and 5. He says this, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Three things. First, show me your way. He expresses it this way. Make me to know your ways. Open my eyes. Help me to know. That word here is God reveal to me what is the right way. What is best for my wife? Life. What is your will? Your way is always the right way, but I must know what it is. Show me. And here's where God's word and God's spirit are so vital in guiding us and knowing the ways of God. He says in Psalm 43:3, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. He says in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Again, Psalm 119 and 130 says this, the unfolding of your words give light, light in our darkness. It imparts understanding to the simple. Lord, I'm so simple. I'm naive. I, I don't know what to do here. I, I'm looking to you. Show me. Show me your ways. Then teach me, he says. Teach me your paths. Not just show me. Teach me. Beyond knowing the right way is the necessity of taking the first step and the right step. So he says, teach me. The Hebrew here tells us somewhat <clears throat> something that goads us or pushes us in the right way. So it's not just knowing what's right. I think most of us in this room will know what's right to do. But doing it's another thing. So, Lord, you need to teach me. You need to push me along in this way. It's not enough just to know what's right in my head. I need to learn to live it out, what I know in my head. But you can't do that on your own. So he brings us to the next request. Look further, verse 5a, lead me in your truth. Lead me in your truth. David can't walk this path alone. And God will be with us, he promises. He needs guidance along the way. He needs strength for the journey. Lead me in your truth and teach me. I need, I need all of this. Show me, teach me, lead me. The word there, lead, literally means to cause me to walk. What, behind, what lies behind this appeal? If you look at verse 5, the latter part of that verse, for you are the God of my salvation. Why, why would I turn to God? Why would I lift up my soul to him that he might make me know his ways and to teach me his paths and to lead me in the truth? Because he is the God of my salvation. He has saved me, and that doesn't mean he leaves me alone. He then sustains me. He says, for I wait all the day long. For you, I wait all the day long. Here's that word wait again. Lord, I, right there, I need you. I am with you. I want to be bound up with you. Lord, give me guidance every day. Notice that all the day long, every day. At each moment, he commits and recommits himself to guidance, the guidance of God in his life. That's the way we have to live. 
as God's people, we look totally and dependent upon Him. And all of this, I can, I can really hear echoes of Psalm 1 regarding the need to walk in the ways of God and delighting in the law of God and meditating day and night in God. This is how we walk with Him all the day long. That said, this point, that brings up a deeper and greater concern for David in his soul as he walks through life because there are things that would hinder our walk. There are things that would lead us off the way to the point, what about sin? What about my sin? What about your sin that could cause shame, that could take us off the path? David has sinned. We know all about that. David will continue to sin. So will I. So will you. So David now deals with that next, that thought next in his next prayer as he takes on a profound theological perspective for us, the third prayer. Lord, Forgive me. This is in verses 6 through 11. As David walks through the darkness, he wants nothing to hinder his fellowship with God or to cause him to stumble. So he calls out to God to listen, to hear his heart, to clear his conscience, to cleanse his soul. Last week I mentioned about how my wife and I were spending four days in Colorado reason for the trip was to spend some time with our 98-year-old father, who is a semi-retired pastor. 98, semi-retired. He preached on his 96th birthday. Well, there was also a wedding out there for one of his grandsons, and we were there to help Pastor Nelson so that the rest of the family could focus on this happy moment, be free to enjoy the wedding, and so on. And so, Pastor Nelson also had part. He did the first part of the wedding at 98. So we came home that evening and in caring for Kathy's dad, and as I was putting him to bed that evening, as I left the room and walked out across the hall into a, a sitting area, he quickly called back to me, Sparky. Yeah, thank you. I turned back. I said to him, Dad, you don't have to thank me. This is my privilege. This is my joy to take care of you. And I leaned over and I hugged him and I gave him a kiss on the forehead. And he answered that by saying this, Sparky, I don't want to do anything that might hinder my relationship with God. What, 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 what did you do? You see, he was convicted that he hadn't said thank you and expressed his gratitude. Well, the question comes to my mind, even that night. I didn't say it out loud. Aren't you being overly sensitive here? I don't think so. I think we, I think I am not sensitive enough regarding my heart, my words, my thoughts, my actions. Here was a man 98 years old, had walked with God, and he's convicted over a trivial thing like gratitude. You know, all, we all should be so grateful to God for all God brings into our lives. Well, Look at how David looks at his own life, his own heart, his own sin. He's convicted. He doesn't take sin lightly like we sometimes do in God's great grace. Note three references as he says, remember, remember, remember in this section. And I want you to remember that remember means to mark, 
to recount, to record something. And I appreciate this because anymore at my age, I need a list when I run an errand to the grocery store and other places. So I make a list. And then as I'm shopping, I mark the list so I won't be ashamed when I come home and have forgotten what mattered most. And I have to face my wife. Where's the, you fill in the blank. Guys, you know what I mean. Well, David knows that he will answer to God. Which sometimes I feel like my wife kind of fills that role in my life here on earth. He knows he will have to answer to God. So, he says, first of all, verse 6, remember your mercy. We sang about that mercy a few minutes ago. His mercy is more. Well, God, well, here, David is appealing to God and his mercy. Verse 6, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. He appeals to God on the basis of God's love, his mercy. He uses a word for mercy here that means compassion. It speaks of tender love and care. And listen to this. Originally, this word was used to picture the cherishing of a child in the mother's womb. Surrounded, protected, loved. You see that usage, by the way, even in Scripture in a reverse way in Hosea 9.14. But this is how God loves his children. This is how God loves you, how God loves me. It's the very word that is used in the familiar passage, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, where it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. There's the word. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is faithful to show his mercy to his children. They never cease. They never come to an end. They are new every single morning to you. What a wonderful blessing to know. His mercy is more. When you sing that, sing it out of joy and out of gratitude. Thing we just talked about. Now, David not only wants him to remember his mercy. But he says, remember not. That's the second thing. I want you to remember your mercy, but remember not my sins. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. You see, the sins of the past, the skeletons in my closet, are we not haunted by failures? Are there not times in which our heart begins to condemn us? But what did John write in 1 John 3, 20, 21? Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. Here, to paraphrase James Hamilton, wonderful preacher, scholar, writer, he reminds us that sin doesn't have the last word. Your sin in your life doesn't have to have the last word. You don't have to live in that. You don't have to live with the guilt of that. His mercy is more. And David here realizes, I'm a sinner, but that's not the end of it. Psalm 25 is reminding us that though we fail and we will, God is faithful. And so, third, he says, remember me. Remember your mercy. Remember not my sins. Remember me for your goodness. Look at verse 7, latter part. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. You see, the foundation 
pour all of his plea here, again, is the promises and character of God. You see that word steadfast love twice in this passage? This is that kesed love. It is our word for grace. And what David is actually doing here, you might not have thought about this. I'd never really thought about it. I've read it over and over, but never thought about this. David is actually borrowing God's own words and repeating them back to it. If you were to go, and I encourage you to turn there and look back to Exodus 34, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, there's a profound statement. I, I only make a few of these. It comes after Exodus 32 and 33. Exodus 32 and 33 is the golden calf incident. It is one of the darkest moments in Israel's days of wandering in the wilderness. They have looked to another God. They have made a God with their own hands and are worshiping him. Well, while the God of heaven is right there on the mountain beside them watching all of this mess. And God is ready to wipe them out. Except in 33, there is an interceder. There's someone making intercession for them, Moses. And God comes to Moses and listen to these words that he spoke to Moses, revealing his own heart, God's own heart in this matter. The Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, that is the covenant keeping God, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who God is. This is what God has promised. This is what God has promised to us. He shows mercy and grace and love and faithfulness and forgiveness. And I don't care who you are or what's happened in your life this past week, over the last year, or over your lifetime. There is a God of mercy and grace and love and forgiveness to come into your life and remember you for his goodness. The foundation for our forgiveness is not trying to make up for the past or trying to be better, but it's resting on the promised mercy, love, and goodness of God that we see right here in this passage. And so, as David thinks through all of this and continues to, to record this in his mind, David's heart now overflows. Verses 8 through 10, look at his praise, picking up on the goodness at the end of verse 9, he then says, or verse 7, he then says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble in, the way, in his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Now, here again, David is quoting God, so to speak. And on this basis, David then adds here in verse 11, for your name's sake, because your name represents all you are and all you have said, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. No matter how great your sin sin is, his mercy, his goodness, his grace is more And David, therefore, recommits himself to keep covenant and not break the covenant in forsaking his God. He promises to follow God with all of his heart. So then David asked for God's blessings. And I move through this quickly now on these last part. The next prayer is, Lord, bless me. Protect me. Guide me, forgive me, Lord, bless me, 12 to 15. Look at verse 12. David tells us that the person who fears the Lord will know the way to choose. 
If you live in the fear of God, God will give you that sense of what is right. And as we fear and follow the Lord, His blessings are abundant to us. And five blessings spill out over the next three verses. I just mentioned these rapidly. They're right there in the text for you. Verse 13, His soul shall abide in well-being. You know what the word there really is? Will abide in good. You see, God is good. And He has goodness. And a good God gives us good things to His children. What did Jesus say? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, it shall be opened to you. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? David's asking, Lord, I I want to taste your goodness. You will bring well-being, goodness into my life. Secondly, verse 13b, his offspring shall inherit the land, literally in the Hebrew, the land. That was so important. This goes back to the promises of Abraham, to Abraham, and to Abraham's offspring, and thus to David. In other words, the covenant blessings are David's. The covenant blessings are ours in Christ. As Peter writes, that Jesus through his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. The promises of God are ours and to our children. That's what Acts 2.39 tells us. You here who are here today, you have the, your covenant children with you. The promises of God are yours, and it's theirs as well. And Peter says in his first letter that God has for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So we walk by faith knowing that all the promises that God has given are for us. Verse 14a, the third thing, the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear Him. This speaks of a close, intimate relationship with the Lord who reveals His truth, which is seen in the fourth thing in verse 14b. He makes known to them His covenant. Here are my promises. Here is my word to you. They are yours. And then finally, verse 15, he will pluck my feet out of the net. It is God who rescues us when we make a mess of things in life. Now, I've seen that in my life over and over. And therefore, verse 15, look what it says. Because of that, our eyes are ever toward the Lord. David is continuing to lift up his soul. Verse 1 Here it is again. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. And so that brings us to the fifth and final prayer. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Why does he need help? Why is he praying this in verses 16 to 22? Well, look look at what we see here. Verse 16, he's lonely and afflicted. Verse 17, troubles are enlarged. They're magnifying in his life. 17, again, there are distresses. Then there's affliction and trouble in verse 18. Verse 19, he has foes, many foes, great opposition. And in fact, 19b, there's also hatred. You stand for Christ. You try to live for God. This is what you will face in your life. And so it's no wonder that then he prays this prayer, Lord, help me, by saying it this way, turn to me and be gracious to me, verse 16. Bring me out, verse 17. Verse 18, consider my affliction. Guard my soul, verse 20. And then he concludes with this. I wait for you. There's that word again. I bind myself up to you. I've got to stay close to you. My life has to be intertwined in Christ. He is waiting for God. His soul is bound up to God for his strength and help. But then almost uh, we wonder, why, why this all of a sudden? 
David adds one more item. And I'm glad he did. A final prayer. But it's no longer personal. Now it becomes corporate for the body. His final words are for all people under the care of their king, King David. And David broadens his request to embrace Israel as God's people when he says, verse 22, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. Be with all your people. I've been crying out to you, but be with Israel. This points to the fact that this psalm, these prayers, these promises, are for all of God's people, even today, the Israel of God, who we are as his people. And so here's what I want you to see as I conclude the message. I want you to grasp this for your life, how this psalm speaks to you. When you glance back up at the several times you'll read about love, steadfast love, and faithfulness. If you were to take those words and translate them over into Greek, as they are done in Septuagint. These words would read this way. You are grace and truth. Grace and truth. Now, what pops in your mind when you think of those words? You may recognize them as echoes of John's gospel. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, we as God's people know a greater king than David. We know a king who died on a cross and rose again from the grave to give us life, eternal life, abundant life. More than that, our king is interceding for us. He is praying for our protection and our guidance and our forgiveness and for our blessing and for our help on our pilgrim journey through life. This is a prayer of Jesus for us because Jesus is the only one who can bring forgiveness and pardon to my sins and your sins, which are great, great, huge before a holy God. For it is through Jesus Christ that God showed himself to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's why if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, you need him to care for your sins. These prayers you can pray, but they don't mean anything unless you're God's child. But this is what Jesus prayed for us, prayed for you. And therefore, remember, God is for us. So who can be against us? And God is with us. What greater encouragement could you want in life than that? And so, along with David, look back down at the text again. Verse 1, you lift up your soul to him in all your need. You trust and rest in him, verse 2. Wait for and bind yourself to him. You are in Christ, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Go and read that today. And finally, verse 20, take refuge in him. He is the God of your salvation. So he is the God who will help you and be with you because he's a very present help in trouble. Thanks be to God. Let's bow for prayer. Father, when we come to a text like this, we can see ourselves and our sins and our failures. But often we just wallow in the mire that we have made. Lord, today, I lift up my soul to you. I lift up this congregation to you, this church to you, your people, your children. Lord, we wait upon you. Lord, we plead for your mercy. Surround us in your love, your steadfast love, and in your grace. 
meet needs that I don't even know about here. But there are needs in every single heart, I'm sure. So may your word and your truth come and lead them and teach them and comfort them. And this we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand to make confession of our faith? As we recite together the Nicene Creed, lend your voice to mine and let us join together in affirming what we believe. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Now we will sing together. <laughs> 